0: I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnays, and I'm on the right. And, and if, we if we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this, this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling, and, and let's, let's save this, this nation. nation. A lot of chaos in the world how are people handling their own politics are they rethinking any of these ideas we'll explore that and so much more coming up on
1: vince and jason save the nation vince and jason save the nation is brought to you by gold co hey guys welcome to vince and jason save the nation i'm your host jason nichols along with my good buddy and colleague vince Colonnays. we have a very interesting guest i'm ready for a robust conversation who do we have with us vince Joining us today
0: is Arthur Bloom. He's the managing editor for Modern Age. This is a forum for debate and discussion of the most important issues and ideas of concern to conservatives, which is obviously why we're going to have Jason Nichols talk so much today. And also, (laughs) also I got to point out, Arthur uh, Bloom has written numerous articles for so many great websites, including The Daily Caller, where he was once an employee, The Washington Post, The American Conservative, The Guardian, Newsweek, and so much more. Uh, Arthur, great to see you again, sir. Glad to be here. If you could just summarize Modern Age, the uh, publication for which you are the managing editor, what's the mission there?
2: Sure. We're, we are the oldest magazine for conservative ideas. We were uh, founded in 1957 by Russell Kirk, uh, and it's, uh, it, it's a magazine mostly, it's, I guess I could, I could say it's fairly highbrow, but it comes out quarterly. Um, and uh, we, we are basically the oldest magazine of conservative ideas on the right. Um, and so we, yeah, we publish quarterly, and we yeah. actually have a new website rolling out here in a couple of months.
0: Well, great, that's awesome. I, can you do you think it's possible to quickly, like, like in a, in a pithy way, sum up what it means to be conservative? Because because I feel like there's this constant debate about what conservative actually means. I think the the left has its own issues, you know, debating what the word liberal means as well. But what does it mean to be conservative?
2: Um, I'd say it's it's a preference for familiar things over strange things, um, a preference for continuity over change. Um, a, a friend of mine once said that uh, the opposite of conservative used to be destructive, uh, not instead of liberal. You know, to conserve something versus to destroy something. So it's it, it's a uh, it's a preference for continuity over change, uh, and and a preference for the permanent things over the passing things. Um, in general, I think uh, you know our, our load stars are guys like Russell Kirk. who was a former editor of Modern Age, yeah. Um, and, and you know all, all of the usual conservative heroes, William F. Buckley, and so forth. But so it's
0: not there's not there's not like an actual fixed policy destination in what you just described. It's kind of it's more like setting cruise control at a low speed limit.
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, I, I I think conservatism is a disposition rather than a set of ideas. It's not an ideology. And in, in fact, if you could describe a conservative in, in like one phrase, it would be somebody that's opposed to ideology. If, if ideology gives you hives, you might be a conservative. Hmm. Um, the, the, and, and so what that means is there is no um, conservative position on, on ideal tax rates. Uh, you know, we, we, might, uh, we might based on reason, based on uh, you know, what's happened in the past Uh, decide that taxes should be higher or lower, but there is no conservative position on tax rates. It's a disposition toward looking at social problems. Gotcha.
1: That's interesting. So, uh, you know, looking at uh, where so-called conservatives are going these days, uh, would you say that that is, because it looks like, for example, when we look at the Trump era, it seemed like there were, there was a lot of radical change or reactionary change, I should say. Um, do you think that uh, that this new era represents a different kind, something different than being conservative or conservatism?
2: Yeah, I mean that's a great point. Uh, during the Trump years, they're definitely you know among people that were very enthusiastic about Trump. They had a kind of radical uh, uh, sensibility. They 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 cared about radical change, and also um, Trump did represent a pretty dramatic shift in. Um, in policy priorities for the nation, back to protectionism, away from uh, imperialism abroad, things like that. So I mean, it, it, the conservatives did care about somewhat radical change. But I, I would say if, if I were to make a conservative case for Trumpism, it would be um, all of these things, protectionism, ending the empire, uh, coming back home and focusing on ourselves for a little while, all of that stuff is about building up the primary goods, which is like the family, home, nation, community, Um, And I think, you know, those policy priorities are all aimed at protecting that set of goods for the family, the community, the nation. Um, Sometimes you have to be radical to preserve those things. Um,
0: But, yeah, it was interesting, especially the Trump years have, I think, provoked a lot of conservatives to take an inventory of what they believe and why and what the actual threats are to the well-being of the country. So traditionally we think of conservative thought as thinking is like oh well the, the the big threat is the government itself that the that the power concentrated within the government represents uh, an existential threat so we need to be very careful about how much power we vest especially at the highest levels of our government but now it seems like all power centers are open to a lot more scrutiny amongst conservatives if you are a powerful institution in the united states you are getting uh, a, a gaze, I mean, like the, the, the public is looking at you and a lot of conservatives now looking at you. What is changing, do you think, right now? What, what, what does that debate look like and where is it headed?
2: Well, uh, you know, the, I, I went back and read there, there's been some, uh, you know, conservatives in America are unusual based on, you know, how conservatives are across the world. The focus that conservatives in America have on, you know, for lack of a better phrase, hating the government, That's something you don't always see among conservatives in other countries, but but it is very much a quality of of conservatives in America. And one of the things that's that's intensifying, and it's it's especially intensifying under Joe Biden, uh, is the uh, the kind of uh, the national security apparatus increasingly is sort of treating them like enemies. Um, And and I went back and read, uh, you know the. Um, uh, th- there's been some new information about the Oklahoma City bombing. And that, that's, to, to go back to, uh, you know, event that was pretty seminal for the 90s, um, Gore Vidal, the, the, the famous, uh, uh, famous writer, novelist, um, history writer, uh, he had a long uh, magazine essay about his conversations with Timothy McVeigh. And McVeigh was like a super patriot, uh, like a super duper patriot, he, almost like if you took your average conservative and made them crazy and violent. Uh, but you know, th- th- their point of view was similar in a lot of ways. A- and so Gore Vidal was trying to reckon, you know, reckon with the idea, what do people do when they feel like their government has declared war on them? And, uh, and I think conservatives are now thinking through some of that also, because of, of some of this like domestic national security stuff that's being put in place. Uh, and they, there's kind of a siege mentality among conservatives, justified or not, uh, after scandals like the IRS targeting uh, or January 6th or things like that, there there's definitely a siege mentality by American conservatives right now. And uh, it, it makes them open to a lot more radicalism than they might have been in the past.
0: Right. There's a lot of distrust towards the government. And right. I, I know Jason will want to explore that with you. But but what about this? What about corporate distrust as well? I mean, that that seems to have grown a lot.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's another thing. I, I, the the um, nor I think Reagan would have considered, that there was Reagan's famous three-legged stool, which was national security, uh, cultural traditionalism, and support for free market capitalism. Nowadays, conservatives feel like free market capitalism is actually hostile to some of the things that they value, be it big tech censoring uh, uh, their point of views, points of view, um, or uh, even like banks debanking people for their conservative activism. Right. There, there's kind of the, the, the realization that uh, these, these companies don't necessarily stand for the same things that conservatives do. And so they're having to rethink their support for free market capitalism. I, I, that hasn't quite filtered up to the party uh, in a way that I, I'd really like to see. But uh, it, it's definitely a trend.
1: <clears throat> yeah, I think that's really interesting. And that should be a place where some conservatives and progressives and, and even some liberals would find agreement is a distrust of, of laissez-faire capitalism and uh, neoliberalism. But what we're finding is that it seems like that is contingent upon certain things. Seems like, you know, I'm just speaking from the perspective of, you know, progressives. It's like, no, that's socialism. That's terrible. If you distrust these corporations, you know, you're a socialist. Uh, unless, you know, those corporations try to constrain what it is that I believe or what it is that I've, I'm doing. Have you found that, um, you know, that to be true? Or, you know, is that just kind of something that you hear liberals and progressives talking about?
2: Well, there's a there's a long way to go. In Conservatives have only just started to make this break with big capital, with, uh, you know, big tech or something. And it hasn't really resulted in a whole lot just yet. Uh, there's a big conversation on the, on the right of center tech policy space about how to use antitrust and how antitrust needs to be changed uh, in order to take on problems like big tech. Um, but, but I, I think mentally a lot of conservatives are kind of already there that they, they now see a company like Google or Facebook as, as a threat to them uh, as something that is, you know, pushing ideas that are uh, you know not good for their children on them or, Uh, you know, things like that. The mental break has kind of already happened, but the the question of what to do about it is still still very much in transition. Like, uh, there's been a lot of pushback also from the traditional elements of the right. You know, the right has not liked antitrust for a long time. I mean, Robert Bork was the king of anti-antitrust, and he's sort of uh, a a real conservative hero. And so that perspective has only just started to change. And, And we... Uh, I think we're, we're a long way from actual policy responses well, to
0: this sort of thing. I do think that the, one of the, the mistakes that is made across the spectrum is the idea that if only my policy prescriptions were followed, we'd achieve utopia, that like the, <laughs> that like the end result of all of the things I believe in is everyone's going to be happy, everything's going to be great. But you know, one of the quotes that's been sticking in my mind so much lately is Thomas Sowell, who said that there are no solutions, only trade-offs. So so if you whatever you pursue, there will be some sort of cost uh, that is measurable and you will see it. And so there, there are these trade offs. And I think you mentioned kind of those the three legs to that conservative stool, the national security, the free market and the and the social uh, conservative uh, aspect and the social conservatives, traditional conservatives, the ones who are looking to sort of like have whole families and, and you know, robust civic engagement are looking around going, man, the other guys got away with murder, like the the foreign policy guys got everything they wanted the 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 free market guys, the fiscal conservatives, they got everything they wanted. And what were American families left with where what happened to social traditions? So I think you're seeing a recalibration on the right that's based on that. Uh, And so as a result, you're going to see some trade offs from those other two legs where things are not you know, maybe we reel back from some of that foreign adventurism. Maybe we aren't so reflexively for consolidation of corporate interests at all costs.
1: Yeah, I, I, I would, uh, you know, I think that's an interesting thing. And, you know, as uh, much as I disagree with Thomas Sowell on most issues, I mean, one thing I, I will acknowledge, uh, unlike many conservative thinkers, I think Thomas Sowell is brilliant. Uh, I just disagree with the guy on everything you know so you know um, I can certainly acknowledge the fact that he's a very, very, very smart man um, and I understand why he is a hero on the right. Um, and that I point, def-
0: do, you, do you agree with that point though about the policy trade-offs that there's no, no solutions in the end it's just
1: trade-offs? Absolutely uh, in, in most cases, um, there are trade-offs or, or at the very least somebody's not going to be happy in the short term. Um, I think long term, for the benefit of society Uh, and they'll always, this is kind of a Machiavellian concept, but you know, someone's always gonna be mad. You know what I mean? Someone's always gonna be unhappy um, because someone, you know, because of whatever their ideals are, aren't met. So I I agree with that. Um, But uh, I also think that sometimes long-term, you know, just like we were saying, like the left for a long time was saying, look, Corporate greed is a problem. Corporate greed is a problem. And the right was, you know, it was like, shut up, communist. And then all of a sudden, you know, now with, uh, you know, deindustrialization and uh, corporate greed going after a lot of right wing, uh, at least culturally right wing people in, in rural America and, and with uh, big pharma and things that are going on that were costing lives. Now the right, is starting to sing a very similar tune. Um, but it is interesting to, it will be interesting to see. And I think this is to Arthur's point. I, I am curious as to, while you point out corporate greed, what are you gonna do about it? You know what I mean? If you don't want government intervention, what, what are you gonna do about it,
2: you know? Right, yeah. Um, the, uh, I think Vince's point is spot on too. The, the, uh, another word, a, a key word for listeners to, to maybe keep in mind is the word fusionism. And fusionism was the idea that uh, cultural traditionalists and laissez-faire free market capitalism people could work together. And that fusionism was sort of the basis of the Reagan coalition. And that's sort of cracking up a little bit right now. Like Vince said, uh, you know, ordinary people are sort of getting up and looking around and, and realizing that they got a bad deal. They, they offered their political support to the right for 30 years. And what have they gotten out of it? Uh, a fentanyl epidemic and, uh, and declining wages and the inability to raise a family on one income. Yeah. Uh, all of that stuff has gotten worse. And so they're, they're, they're looking around and asking, you know, what can we do to make this deal, uh, to, to change the terms of this deal? Uh, and you know protectionism is probably going to be part of that. I, I mean the, the, in terms of things that we can actually do to those companies to make them pay more, I mean there's, there's always higher corporate tax rates. I mean, I think one of the big failures of the Trump years is that he was he supposed to, he was supposed to represent this new kind of conservatism that was protectionist, that was against the empire, that kind of thing. Uh, but his signature
1: legislative achievement was a big fat corporate tax cut. Thank you, Uh, Arthur. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I've been trying to say forever. Thank you, bro. But anyway, continue. I apologize.
2: Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say about how this hasn't quite trickled down to the policy level. Um, And, you know, the, the, the way we're having the conversation with big tech it's not how do we get Google to pay more? It's Google's a threat to me and we need to deal with that threat. That's a very different way of, of looking at a policy right. problem. Right. Um, yeah. the, the It's not just that Google needs to pay more. It's that Google is actively doing things that are harmful. Uh, it, and so it calls for a different sort of response. It, it, it's... Uh, if if that really is the problem that Google is like a clear and present danger for people or something like that, it's hard to see how anything would be really up to the task a- aside from like antitrust or something like that. There, there, and there are many ways to do antitrust with Google. I, the, the obvious one is splitting off the Android Store, uh, splitting off the ad business, splitting maybe splitting off YouTube. Uh, there are a zillion ways to do it, but just you know scatter this thing to the four winds because it's hurting us. It, it, it's sort of the the. The id of of, yes. of conservative anti big tech, um, but but the um, right now the policy side of the GOP is still uh, is still in the era of Paul Ryan, I suppose.
1: Can I can I ask uh, one question of Arthur real quick mm-hmm. um, about protectionism? Because I, I feel like people are making it seem like Trump invented protectionism and that this is something new, but I feel like in the eighties. That was part of the rhetoric of Ronald Reagan was protectionism. and It was. And, and it, it, you know, I would argue that particularly if you were on the bottom rungs of society, it didn't help. You know, um, it, it in some ways made us less competitive. You know, I remember, you know, buy American cars and we want to do everything, you know, the, the kind of protectionist uh, way. And I, I, my question to you right now is with China as a looming threat and China wanting to go around the globe, you know, at least a threat to American hegemony. Um, and China's, you know, going into Africa, building infrastructure in Africa and controlling it. Then going into South America, building infrastructure and controlling it. If we're protectionists, aren't we gonna all of a sudden wake up and find China as a lead, the, the leading global power?
2: Um, I think those are separate problems. Uh, I, I mean, protectionism is, is a way of fixing our trade imbalances. We're based uh, our right now we have a big trade deficit and we didn't have to have that. The, um, uh, the, the one thing about Reagan that maybe is worth defending him on a little bit, and I'm, I'm far from an uncritical admirer of Reagan. Um, uh, but the, uh, he saved Harley Davidson, for instance, pretty iconic American company. He did that with tariffs and, uh, I mean, I think it's better that we make motorcycles here than than China making them. And, and, you know, the the record is actually if we expand the timeline a little bit. I mean, it was protectionism that that made America a manufacturing powerhouse. I mean, this is this is the reason why people supported Henry Clay, the American system. Uh, That was protectionism. And that's what turned America into a manufacturing powerhouse. It's laissez faire. Free market stuff that has hollowed out our manufacturing because uh you know everything can get done cheaper somewhere this, else
0: this goes actually right to a point that biden made in his state of the union address this week because he he was claiming that uh by restoring made in america uh to the extent that that we can do that or that he will be able to achieve that as president that that will uh redound to the benefit of american consumers that he, he was saying that it, it'll basically arrest the the rise in costs. And that, of course, would not be the case. That would be; it would be there'd be a, a really meaningful trade-off here. Which is, yes, you would uh, enrich American workers, but the the cost of those goods would actually be higher because if they're made in America, the cost of labor is higher than it is in say places yeah. like like right. China. Uh, right. So um, that is that goes right to the point of uh, kind of those trade-offs. Like, what do we value, and why, and what should we prioritize? And and will there be costs? Yes, that there will be. Uh, including and of course as always whenever you increase the cost of goods those that those burdens will fall heaviest on the people who are least able to afford them
2: yeah I think that's exactly right we, we shouldn't pretend that there are trade-offs here and uh, building more stuff at home means we're going to pay a little bit more for it but um, you know at, at the end of the day and this almost makes me sound like a progressive um, it's about the kind of society and the kind of economy you want to have yeah um, and I think one of the priorities when when we're constructing an economy is is meaningful work. Um, it, it it won't do for th- this massive shift into the service economy um, has left people without work that that really is fulfilling and meaningful. Um, we we it actually matters if we make things or not. It, it everybody is not going to be able to be a Lyft driver or an Uber driver. Um, the, the we, we traded our manufacturing base for gig work. And do, do, do people that are now doing that sort of thing feel like that trade-off was worth it? Uh, wh- and, and what have we lost? I mean, we've also become a poorer country because of that transition. Um, so so I, I, it is true that there are trade-offs, but I mean, I, I in my yeah. opinion, it would be worth it. Right, in other words,
0: like uh, human dignity is of immense value. And right. it can be found in actually building, creating, you know, doing something rather than just serving as like the last robot in a in a, a delivery system.
2: Exactly. Yeah. It uh, you know, where where's the place for human beings in all of this?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: No, I, I, I think we, we definitely agree there about um, manufacturing as much as possible uh, when possible in the United States. Um, and I think a lot of that, it's, it's interesting. I just, uh, I just hosted an event uh, where we had Ro Khanna at the University of Maryland. And one of the things that we were talking about was uh, the kind of education that we need to give American youth, particularly uh, youth of color, African-American youth, Latino youth, um, Native American youth. And a lot of it is going to be a STEM education. We need to give them a STEM education because they will have uh, the ability, even if they don't want to go to college and pursue, you know, not everybody's going to be a programmer in uh, Silicon Valley. Some people are going to be working, you know, uh, in factories in Michigan or in factories in other places because those skills are needed in order to You know, involve yourself in those factory jobs. My question to you is, what do you think of the, uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill? And uh, do you think that, you know, with the way that it's been kind of carved down, would you have made it bigger? Uh, Because a lot of that is going to lead to Americans doing jobs here in the United States you know, producing things here in the United States, a lot of the climate agenda in terms of renewable energy and the windmills and all that, that's going to hopefully be done here in the United States. Um, what, what's your opinion on, on the bipartisan infrastructure bill? And should it have been bigger or should it should it have been smaller?
2: Well, uh, I guess it's complicated. If I were in Congress right now and I had to take a vote on it, I'd probably vote for it. Um, but that being said, uh, there, there's a lot of pork and a lot of uselessness in there. Um, I, if you know, my ideal would have been for Trump to pass a big infrastructure bill, but that ship has sailed, and he elected not to do that. Um, another thing that I think is missing big time is the, is nuclear energy. Um, I, I think you know, if we're going to have a conversation about climate change and um, and transitioning to renewables, if nuclear isn't in the mix, it's just not serious. And there's, in these big infrastructure, you know, there are a lot of uh, giveaways uh, to green energy. I, I mean, I, I, I tend to think a lot of this green energy stuff is a big racket for de- democratic donors. That's certainly the history of these projects going back to the Obama era. Um, but, but at the same time, we really do have crumbling infrastructure and we need to spend money to fix it. The, the, uh, the time to do it, I, I mean, I think the real tragedy of this whole thing is that we didn't do this stuff when money was cheap? The Fed is now thinking about raising rates. It's going to make it more expensive to borrow. We should have uh, we should have spent big a couple of years ago. Uh, so no, uh, but but I have to say, maybe it makes me a traitor, but uh, I'd probably vote for it.
0: <laughs> uh, well, this gets right back to the core point of you know what are the you know what what are the uh, what's the direction of conservatives? I want to ask you about another debate, which is how much power should the federal government have? So there's a traditional uh, thought amongst a lot of conservatives that we need to restore federalism. We need to, you know, vest more power into local communities and less power into the federal government. But there's another line of thought, which is that the federal government should use its power to exert conservative political priorities, uh, you know, whatever, whoever, you know, whatever priority, whoever ends up be ele- being elected and managing uh, that wish list. Um, how is that debate, do you think, going?
2: Well, it's it's certainly true. I think what you're referring to is kind of this newfound willingness by right wingers to use government power for conservative ends, for right. conservative social priorities, uh, and and we see that in a couple of different ways. I mean, I'm sure there are some people that would like a federal ban on drag queen story hour. Now, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm I'm no fan of drag queen story hour, but. Um, the uh is it really worth the time of the federal government to to ban it uh mm-hmm. and at the, the federal level uh, i i kind of don't think so it's it it seems like kind of a waste of time but you know what, what your your question gets at the get, gets at the matter of scale which right. is so important um, the uh, i i think we hear a lot of the the word democracy is a little bit of a shibboleth on the left uh you know and i, I if i as a conservative wanted to make one point to my friends on the left, it would be that, you know, it, it matters the scale of the democracy you're participating in. Uh, your, your ability to have a meaningful voice uh, at a town meeting in Vermont or at a county board meeting in Kansas is dramatically greater than, your, than, than the power you have voting in a national election, voting for president. Voting for president, you're one in 150 million votes, something like that. Uh, voting for your town supervisor or something uh, that's that's an election you're, you're going to be voting you know your your share is much larger your your amount of democratic power is much larger and so you know it, it in order for democracy to be meaningful like that implies the in order for democracy to be meaningful it has to be at a human scale and so uh you know we if we want it, we can't just use the word democracy and then pretend you know that this this government i mean half people half of the people don't vote in federal elections anyway uh it, you know the I, I think it's a little bit of a mistake to think that that federal or democracy at the federal level is the only kind that matters mm-hmm. um it, uh, the, anyway that that was Three. what i was trying yeah. to say well so one,
0: uh, i just make one follow-on point and jason you yeah. can say this i I've mentioned before, you know, sometimes you hear people saying, well, we should break up the country, maybe like because we can't agree. I'm like, baby, the country's already broken up. We got 50 different states. There's no reason to break it up. Just pick the state that that matches your policy priorities. But that gets harder and harder when the federal government assumes more power over those priorities. Go ahead, Jason.
1: Yeah, I was I was uh, going to say, darn it, I totally about democracy.
0: He was talking about uh, the way the left talks about democracy and how it's important at the local level. Especially Oh,
1: right. Yes. Uh, this is something that, that I talk about in, in terms of a lot of, uh, you know, progressive policy uh, desires. Uh, a lot of times people talk about, for example, uh, police state violence uh, against black and brown bodies. And I'm like, do you realize that your sheriff is an elected position, your county sheriff, your Uh, district attorney is an elected position, you keep looking at Joe Biden, you know what I mean? But he doesn't necessarily control, he definitely doesn't control local policing in your area. As much as he went up yesterday and said, fund the police. He's not necessarily in control of that. But you as a local voter, you know, we, I live in one of the most progressive counties in the state of Maryland, uh, which is a blue state, blue purple uh, state. And, you know, we had a sheriff who just recently, you know, came out and became public knowledge that he routinely used the N-word, you know, was, uh, you know, uh, didn't hire some, you know, Black uh, officials in in his administration, but he won over and over and over again because nobody paid attention to the county sheriff. So, uh, again, I, I would say that local politics... Are certainly devalued and, and that's one place that we're definitely gonna uh, definitely gonna agree. Now I will say also on, on the side of the left, just about national politics and their importance. Uh, one of the reasons why the left sometimes argues for big government is number one, I think we want people to have you know important things that are important to our agenda, like healthcare and things like that, you know, things that you know, I know there's debate even within, you know, the, the big tent of the left. But we want people to have health care. We want people to have all those things. And also when we look at it historically, me being an African-American studies uh, professor, I will say this, without big government and you let local governments it, or even state governments, schools are segregated. Mm-hmm. We go back to school segregation. We go back to, you know, it was big government that solved that kind of situation, solved yeah. Jim Crow. So a lot of people on the left, including, you know, shout out to my 93-year-old grandmother, yeah. you know, who I saw recently. She remembers that.
0: But see, Jason, remembers- that point, Jason, that point you're making is a good one because I think what happened was the 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 good imposition of the federal government in the civil rights era has been used as a as a bad imposition of the federal, as an excuse for a bad imposition of the federal government in a much more broad way. So you're right. That's exactly, if you're, if you're going to look back in history and say, hey, where was it important for the federal government to step in? Boom, the 60s. Makes total sense. But beyond that, that's often been used as an excuse for, okay, now the federal government should be setting policy at the state level all across the board. And even and sometimes even like things like, like federalism and the word states' rights will be flagged as, oh, that's like just a dog whistle. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like it, it becomes it became like a, a panacea. It was a catch all. Like now the federal government should cure every ill in every state, in every city. Uh, and no, I, I think that extraordinary relief was unique to an extraordinary moment.
2: Well, I was just going to bring up another possibility, too. Uh, I mean, the, the way uh, the way police reform gets done in a lot of these cities is an imposition by the federal government on localities. It's done through lawsuits uh, from the Department of Justice. The the Department of Justice will sue Baltimore or Ferguson or or wherever else uh, Mm -hmm. claim that their their police department is systemically racist. And then in the settlement uh, when, when, because inevitably the city settles because it's a David and Goliath thing. Most cities don't have the ability to go up against the Department of Justice. They don't have the money, they don't have the same resources. And so, you know, Big bad Goliath, the feds, uh, you know, are are going to be able to extort out any reforms that they want because they're they're the big guy. I, I suspect you might disagree, Jason. I I, uh,
1: I I do. Did you read that report out of Baltimore and the way the citizens of Baltimore were being treated? Like that was, you know, have have you ever been pulled over and stripped naked on a sidewalk, you know, uh, or had a uh, you know, had your your cavity searched in, in plain sight and have you been stopped walking to, you know, to the bus stop to work 50 times in a year uh, and never been arrested, never had anything on you? So I, I, I think the government, the federal government, again, part of what their role is, is when states uh, violate the Constitution and hurt uh, people who live in a, in a particular locality, um, the federal government has to jump in. That is the role of the DOJ. Um, and I can think of a couple of situations. For example, I know that the right, and I know you guys have probably have a different view of it, but you know, stop and frisk, you know, uh, which to me is a violation of the fourth amendment. You are not allowed to just go as, as uh, uh, Bloomberg said, throw a guy against the wall and search him you know, because you don't like his face. Uh, and yet uh, there were people arguing for that. And to me, that is a violation of your constitutional rights. And again, going back to the civil rights era, you know, you had, for example, the 15th amendment that said African-American men can vote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You had the 19th amendment that said women can vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that of course includes African-American women and states found a way around it, you know, and denied, you uh, you know, these constitutional rights, it is the government and you have a right to walk to the bus stop and not get searched. You have a right to as and this was a woman, by the way, who got searched naked, got stripped naked and searched on, on a sidewalk. Right. You you have the right to not have that happen.
0: I guess my point you know? is that is the federal government should be available for extraordinary relief, not for ordinary relief. Right. I mean, those I think at the basic level, what Jordan's Jordan, your point is you can wield Arthur. influence at the local level and should. Arthur.
2: Well, uh, the, the, and then the other thing, if we're going to be consistent, right, shouldn't, uh, if Baltimore has this big problem with how people are being policed there, shouldn't they throw out their city government? It, Absolutely.
1: It, it, Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, you know, we've seen uh, the feds come in and indict city government officials. We've seen uh, the, the uh, public in Baltimore vote out uh, city officials and again we we agree on the the you know the need for the public to be involved and to be uh, engaged in local politics there's yeah. no disagreement you will find from certainly not from me and I don't think from anybody uh, the only thing that I'm saying is that when there is local overreach the federal government should step in that's why we elect mm-hmm. them like you know lo- local areas, states should be able to run their own affairs but when they run afoul of the constitution then it is the role of the federal government to step in and say we are protecting the constitutional rights because these people are american citizens or not citizens you know
0: yeah that makes sense Uh, arthur uh arthur what's on on your agenda right now what's your key focus well, right now I'm
2: focused. I, I've got a couple of pieces coming out, both about espionage uh, yeah, uh, in, in Silicon Valley and the China, uh, the China Initiative that was just shut down by the Department of Justice. So look out for those. I also wrote about unions for um, for American Affairs. You can go check that, that piece out uh, at AmericanAffairs.com. Uh, that one was about kind of the state of unionization right now and, and kind of all this talk. Uh I that's been a little bit overblown about a quote Republican Workers Party. Uh and uh so my my piece is sort of looking at the prospects for that actually kind of coming through.
0: Cool. Very all all thought-provoking ideas. Uh, I know I know we're short on time here, so we're just grateful for the time we had with you today. Arthur Bloom, uh, thank you for spending some time with us on Vincent Jason Save the Nation, sir.
2: Glad to be here. Take care. Great to talk yeah. to you. Thank you, you Arthur.